Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. Brian Dunn is a songwriter who grew up not far from where I've lived for the last 20 years in the Hudson Valley here. He lives now and joins us from Brooklyn, New York having just released his new album, Loser on the Ropes, which is great. He has uh, the perspective of someone who started this a full generation after me, but I feel like he and I could have been, you know, uh, I don't know about separated at birth, but certainly old friends. He's a good dude. His perspective is fascinating to me. Um He's had to deal with a lot of stuff I've never had to deal with. I was lucky enough to be around for the the uh, music industry as a functioning entity, and he's had to function in a world uh, post-music industry. But he's done a great job, and I think his um, outlook on the world, I think his perspective, I think his attitude – I think the, those are why he has not only survived as long as he has, but flourished in the way that he has. I'm really glad to be friends with Brian, and I'm really grateful that he was willing to sit down and share some of his hard-earned wisdom with me and with you, faithful listener. Please welcome to Wheels Off, Brian Dunn. Welcome to Wheels Off. Brian Dunn, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Rhett. Uh, for the edification of our listeners, where are you logging in from? Um, I live in Red Hook, Brooklyn, so I happen to be home right now. Um, and uh, yeah, so Red Hook, I don't if, if you don't know, it's like a sleepy little waterfront neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, it's also in the first line of the Bob Dylan song, Joey. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's where I, where I reside, but... This is my first album release that I've ever tried to be home for. Um, the, the tour sort of starts next month. So it's actually been really great because uh, I can <laughs> I can be slightly organized. Yeah, I started to tell you before we were properly recording, congratulations on the new record. As we tape this, it's only a few, day, few days old, right? Yeah, exactly. It came out on Friday. Uh, and thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Dude, that's so exciting. It and it, and uh, what I've heard is fantastic, and it just seems like it's really exciting. I mean, I I know that um, the producer you worked with seems very cool. What was that? Where was that? That in Brooklyn? Yeah, no, I actually worked with Drew Vandenberg, um, who's in Athens, Georgia. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I did one song with uh, Andrew Sarlo, who who produced my previous records and is a good friend of mine. Uh, but I, I I reached out to Drew. I had never met him before. 
Uh, I'd heard a couple Faye Webster records that yeah. I really like and I really took to. And I've always wanted to record in Athens because of REM. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I try to, I feel like I try to find something that takes me out of my comfort zone every time I try to make a record because I have a habit of sort of running off with the show. So I sort of try to tie one hand behind my back and uh, see if I can make something that sounds different than the what I would naturally do. And so I went down to Athens. We put together a, a band that was, was sort of a strange band that had no bass. Uh, it was m- me on guitar and uh, Jojo Glidewell on uh, keys. Who He plays for Of Montreal, and he sort of handled all the low-end frequencies. And then I, I ended up playing some bass on some of the songs, uh, Jeremy Wheatley on drums. And then we got um, Annie Leith, who I had never met, to play very sh- essentially like Laurie Anderson style violin, which to me sounded like when when this was pitched to me as as a instrumentation is like, okay, I feel like sonically there's going to be a giant hole in it, but we'll see what happens. And it ended up coming out um, better than I could have even imagined. I think that it it sort of again tied one hand behind my back and forced me to think outside the box with a lot of these songs. Did you not end up overdubbing any bass on the record? Oh no, I totally did. Okay, I good. <laughs> so much bass on the record, uh, but it, it at least started me from a point where I was I was out of sorts, and and I think it it led me to think in an opposite direction. And I kind of feel like I don't know. I'm sure old ninety sevens records work different from Rhett records, but uh, I was listening to your interview with Sam Cohen. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was really interesting how, how open you were to working in a completely different way than you had worked previously. And I think that's really important for, for solo artists. Yeah, probably for anyone. But, you know, as you're describing it, it's it's harder for a band, you know, where you've got sort of your the ways you always do things. But but for you, it's great because you're and for me, I guess, but you, you're stuck in your head. And so you want to challenge yourself as you're describing. Yeah. And I think that, you know, look when when it's your name on the record you you know ultimately like you're the buck stops with you you're gonna you're gonna be the the one out there selling this and and it's 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 on your merch table so there's going to be a certain amount of authority you have but when i listen to my records i want them to sound like a collaboration so it's very hard i sort of have to you know break break my like like interrupt my own chain of command to make sure that I'm making something that has a depth of a, a depth of influence. Other, otherwise I'll just, you know, I'm, I'll make it sound how I sound. And, and cause that's my natural instinct. Has your fantastic cat experience um, made you more of a band guy? <laughs> I don't know. You have to ask them. So fantastic cat is a, uh, a super group, although none of us are famous. So it might just be a group. Um, <laughs> comprised of myself, Anthony D'Amato, Mike Montali, and Don DeLego, four New York songwriters. And um, I definitely, we are, we are working on album two right now. And uh, I, I love, I love working in, in that format where um, there's sort of, there's some, some, there's a little bit of heat off of you, but there's also, you have to have a little bit more give in terms of, uh, opinions and there's definitely a lot of opinions in that band but we you know ultimately like on album one the arguments i lost i ended up being like huh 
actually, that kind of works. I wonder how many of those I haven't lost in my own career that I maybe should have. That's hilarious. Yeah, well, it's, it seems like it's um, it's another way you're stretching yourself. Yeah, you know, it definitely was a left turn, I think, for some people who had been following my career to kind of, I, I made, I guess, three solo records over the last 10 years. I guess I've, it's hard to say when you've been active since, right? I've I've been playing for my whole life, but I moved to New York in 2011, and I put out an EP and then three solo records. And, you know, look, the pandemic was hard on everyone. So it's it's hard to say, you know, I think everyone felt like, oh, okay, maybe this is, you know, trending downward or whatever. And yeah, I, I put out a record on April 10th, 2020. And, um, you know, it didn't exactly make headline news. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I, things, things, had, I, you know, kind of, I kind of felt like a bit of a flop, you know, I, I was, I, I had turned 30 and I know that 30 is no big deal now, but for whatever reason, it's, it feels like a very loaded age for a musician. Yeah. I don't know if you felt that way when you turned 30, but I feel like when you're a kid, people say, well, you know, you give it to your 30 or you see where you get when you're 30. And, you know, I guess you feel like you might turn into a pumpkin or something. And that coincided with 2020 as 30 and 2020. And so that was not a good time for any of us to take stock in our entire lives, but I couldn't help it. And I found myself, I'd spent, it was an independent release. So I'd spent all of my money on the album and uh, (laughs) I found myself unemployed and completely broke. And I, you know, I was feeling like a bit of a, a, a failure and I started just sharing that with other people in, in my, my music community and my friends and, and stuff. And it turned out that everyone else felt like a total failure too. And so I thought, well, this couldn't, I don't think this could be possible. I mean, I, I suppose it's possible that I only surround myself with, with failures, but I, I doubt it. So that was sort of the seedling for this record is that if, how, how can we all feel like failures? And then the people who are actually failing the planet, and our and our world, they sleep so well at night, you know. Yeah, uh, that theme comes through loud and clear, and it's such a great theme. It it feels like you're making lemonade, as it were, you know. I, I, yeah, I was hoping to. I forget the original question. I think was a fantastic cat. Oh yeah, in the interim, oh. we put out the we put out the fantastic cat record, uh, and that was the first thing I did. That sort of, I don't know. There was even even as modest as it was, you can just tell when there's just a little bit of a spark of interest, and I could tell. We, I think we all agreed that there's something people found it, it, it. If they didn't like it, they were at least curious about it. And that was the first time that it sort of happened for all of us across the board. It was interesting. So you describe um, having played music your whole life. I wonder, um, do you remember a moment when you knew it was going to be like your job, your vocation? Your Do you remember a, a moment of epiphany? Yeah, you know, it's very strange, right? Like, because... Um, I don't get too mystical with any of the the muse or any of that, that stuff, but I have always wanted to be a singer songwriter, which is an incredibly specific thing for like a four year old to want to be. Um, I wonder sometimes if I died at a concert and I came back to life, 
you know, or something strange like that. Uh, because I've always wanted to be specifically a singer songwriter, harmonica rack until I've had a harmonica rack since I was like five years old. I remember like playing for my second grade class with the little like Bob Dylan hat, which is terribly embarrassing, but wow. I, yeah, I've always, I, there's always been just, this is what I was going to do. So I, there was definitely a spark. I mean, I saw Bruce Springsteen playing Rosalita on a videotape when I was very young and it, it uh, ruined my life, you know? <laughs> That's amazing. And, uh, and it's, it's great that you have um, done what you've done. You described the, the, the idea of turning 30 and I totally get that. I mean, I know for me growing up and, all, all of those original wave of rock and rollers talked about, you know, don't never trust anyone over 30, you know, rock and roll life ends at 30. And that was the justification I used to drop out of college. Um, Cause like, God, I don't want to waste these four years because when I turn 30, they'll kick me out. Do you feel now that you've passed that threshold? Do you feel what I think is the new reality is that you're allowed to be older? Does that, has that landed for you? Well, for me, it's going to have to be. Um, but, (laughs) um, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I heard the comedian, uh, Mike Birbiglia say this once and I really took it to heart. He was talking about comedy, but I think it pertains to music, which is, I think you do get into the arts for maybe some of the wrong reasons. We want to be famous or we want (laughs) to do drugs forever or whatever the, the reasons are. And if you're lucky, you get to do it long enough that you find out those aren't the reasons you do it at all. So my it's strange my motivation has never been stronger and and yet my motivation is entirely different than it was when i was uh you know a teenager because i i know now that like everywhere you go there you are right like we're never getting we're not getting out of this one you know um so i i maybe when i when i started was hoping that you know there would be some some level of success i might get to that would make me feel different or something like that. And uh, that's not going to be the case. I'm going to feel like this forever. But I have a completely different set of reasons why I am going to continue doing this for the rest of my life. And they're, they're a lot more gratifying and maybe a little bit existential, you know, uh, in what I want to do with my time on earth. Um, And it gets a little heady and a little heavy, but I, I, I think that um, yeah, you know, you, you do find that life, life doesn't end at 30. It actually sort of begins. I'm pretty glad my twenties are over. They were pretty disastrous and messy. <laughs> I feel like 30 is, uh, the, the perfect age in a lot of ways. Um, like if I could go back in time, it would probably to be pretty much what you're, where you are right now. It's a, you're one generation <laughs> behind me. I think exactly twenty years uh, younger than than I am. And so I guess my point is to you, not that you need a pep talk, but you're you're in a great spot, and and you and you're putting out a, a really great record. Um, I do wonder you're coming out of the um, that weird period of the record being done, but then you're waiting for it to come out and waiting for the world to do whatever it's going to do in response to it. And, you know, you know that whatever happens, you're going to still be you, as you just pointed out, which I think is such a great point that people overlook so often. Um, But I'm wondering about when you inevitably encounter those voices in your head that are telling you the negative stuff, you know, whatever it is, the stuff that's keeping you from um, 
writing as many songs or as good as songs or 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 you know living day to day in a way that's happy and fulfilling and not painful um when you encounter those internally generated obstacles what have you figured out as a way past those <laughs> that's a good question uh yeah i i i i my negative voice is is quite loud uh and you know it's it's really really it's been really difficult. It's funny. I just, I, earlier this year, I ran like a little half marathon and I, I, I was, it was so, I was being so negative while I was doing I just wanted to see if I could do it. Right. Zero sum game. And I was, it was in prospect park and I was running through the park, like just audibly shushing myself. Like if you'd have just seen me, I was just like, like just running through the park because my, my, my negative voice was so loud. And I, I was thinking the whole time, I was like, this is so strange because I'm telling myself I can't run this half marathon. I'm running it. It's happening right now. I deal with it on such a, a, a colossal level. And I, it's, it's strange, right? Because some of that stuff you do actually need, you know, I, I think that being discerning is, you know, what, not just what you leave in, but what you leave out, you know, what you won't stand for. And, you know, I think that quality control is really important and having a little bit of not negativity, but a little bit of, we're not going to, we're not going to allow that lyric into the song, even though, yeah, we could give examples of good songs with bad lyrics or I don't know, stuff like that. Um, but how I'm trying to deal with it is um, understanding, understanding what your, my weaknesses are and trying to, trying to, you know, I, I guess at this point at 33, I'm about to turn 34. I've, I've felt it all once, you know? And so I can, I can say like we were talking about earlier with fantastic cat. I'm like, there are examples of, of me shooting something down, still losing the argument, it coming out and being like, Oh yeah, that was actually pretty good. I was overthinking that. Generally speaking, I've gotten to the point where I, I think that if I, just because I don't like something doesn't mean it's not good. And I try to give myself that, that second guess. I, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I don't know if I said that well. <laughs> the, the short answer is I, I'm, I'm slowly starting to deal with it, but I'm in progress. Well, aren't we all? Um, yeah. I think, th I think that's, that's imp what you, the point that you make about sometimes the negative voice is useful because it's also your editorial voice. Like, how do you, how do you keep the voice that's telling you, you suck, you're no good. You'll never do anything good. Um, how do you, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I think this might be a rhetorical question, but how does one differentiate between that voice and the voice that says, Oh, you could do better on this line in this song or something. There, there's a, a Leonard Cohen uh, snippet that I saw the other day that landed so hard with me where he described writing a first pass of a song of a set of lyrics and then going back through it. And the wording he used was, um, I want to go back through and try and find any slogans in the song because slogans that are easy where I'm just falling back on crutches, you know, you know, other people's words and that kind of stuff that that's, it's, it's so easy to do and it's so cheap. And I'd never thought about it like that. I, I thought of obviously of the idea of cliches. I, like you said, you know, other songs have used this, but can I say, you know, can I also use the, can, um, but to think of it as slogans is I, it's something that seems really useful for me, but yeah, it's, 
it's a fine line that we walk because we have to let that voice in, but how much influence do we let it have and, and how far do we let it in? Right. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to just decide when to turn it on and turn it off for, I think that, yeah, when you're, when you're writing an album, you do need to, to be, you know, you know, crossing, you know, kill kill your darlings, as they say, right? Like crossing lines out, even that might be good, but if they don't serve the song and then when you're on stage, you can't be thinking like that, you know? And I've had, I've had times where, you know, in tours where I, I was just on stage going like, I don't know about this song anymore, you know, and that's not a good voice to have in your head. Um, it, not to keep bringing it back to Bruce Springsteen, but he gave this keynote speech at South by Southwest totally. like 10 years ago or 11 years ago or so. And he closed by saying, you know, um, the truth, the truth of, about music is there is no keynote because your songs are life and death and it's only rock and roll. And you just have to live between those two things. And if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger. And that's, that's kind of what I live by is that generally if I'm having a problem, it's either that I'm not, I'm not treating it like life and death enough or it's only a song and I need to relax. Like there are only two and I'm probably stuck somewhere in the middle frozen pointing at it. And you need, you need both those things. You need sometimes to be in the studio and go, you know, it's just a song. Like did, you know, did the Dave Clark five think about all this when, when they wrote glad all over, like, were they, were they thinking about, you know, the, the sort of the, the present tense versus the past tense. And then at the same time, Leonard Cohen absolutely was, you know, and uh, you need both things. God, I think about years ago, a quote I heard from Charles Thompson, nay Frank Black um, from the Pixies, which is one of my favorite bands. And um, he, he, they asked him about his lyrics, which tend to be a little on the kooky side. Um, and he said, you know, do you, you think uh, Mark Boland thought about his lyrics? He just said a bunch of crazy shit and just that was it. <laughs> Right. And I have that thought all the time. And then I remember I'm not Mark Boland. Yeah. Right. Cause that's also the thing, you know, that's the thing you get into where you go, well, Mick Jagger half the time I couldn't understand what you're saying. And you're like, yeah, but he's fucking Mick Jagger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's good. I mean, you know, I feel like you are on a journey and I feel like with each record, you're sort of finding more and more who you are and that's what we do, you know? And I'm really, I mean, I've, I feel I'm so excited for you for this record and I just, um, I hope you feel really good about it because you should be proud of it. It's great. All right, thanks, right? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a good point you make. I, I think that I've learned to believe in incrementalism a little bit more. You know, I think we all want it all right out of the gate. We all want our debut to be one of those, um, you know, great debuts we talk about. And the truth is, like, I, I made my first record and, you know, obviously I had, like, I had, I think I had, $4,000 to my name, which wasn't bad, you know, uh, and I spent it all on the record and, uh, you know, and that, that, um, it came out and, you know, a few people heard of it and, you know, it was pretty disappointing, obviously, but what do you expect? I was 24 years old and yeah, I, I look back now and I go, yeah, good start. You know, at the time I was devastated. I thought like, oh, my life's work. It has, it has been misunderstood or whatever. And, um, I started just thinking, well, what if, what if we just, what if we're just, you know, going step by step here? So I called the second record Bug Fixes and Performance Improvements as sort of a dedication to that idea that what if we are just with each thing going back and taking out what we don't like and 
and updating some of the uh, some of the glitchy parts. It's it's a less sexy way to think about uh, art, and maybe it's not a great way to market it, but it helps relax your artist brain to just think, what are we doing when we make our next record? When you're having that great existential crisis of who am I as an artist and what do I want to say? And now it's my ninth record. And what does that mean to remember what we are doing is we are going back and we are, we are taking the old stuff. We're taking it apart. We're updating it for who we are now. And we're just making it a little bit better. And we're trying to make it a little bit better so that it, it feels a little sharper and, Obviously, there's all that other stuff, too, that exists where you do want to express yourself and make your most, I'm quoting, your most revealing work to date. But I also think at the same time, you are simply going in and trying to best yourself by 25% or whatever it is. And so that's, that's what I'm getting at. I want, I want to just, I want to go into the studio and make a record that is a little bit better than this one and a little bit better than this one and a little bit better than this one. And, uh, you know, maybe at that rate, I'll be, um, you know, just like a, a monster by the time I die, you know? <laughs> but I think, I think you're addressing a, a, another rock and roll myth that has always driven me crazy that I feel like is being debunked, um, in real time for us and our peers. The, the idea that, the hot blush of youth is what makes you great, right? You're you're in your 21, whatever the first record, like that's you know. And 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 I know when I was growing up, I would point to bands and I would say, well, their their first two records were great, but everything after that sucked. And sometimes that was the case. And right, but I totally, I feel like there is more room, and there should be more room for the recognition of artists getting better as they age. Because why wouldn't they? I, absolutely, writers get better as they age. You know, I think a lot of actors get better as they age. I wonder, I've thought about that a lot, right? Because, yeah, you know, uh, most of my favorite records by my favorite artists were, you know, written in their 20s. And part of me wonders if that's just by the, the nature of how it used to be in the music world, right? Like, everyone, we made people so incredibly ubiquitously famous back in the 60s and 70s that by the time they hit 40 and they'd been famous for half their lives, they'd started to fall out of touch with the common person, right? Um, and, I, you know, I, I wonder if our favorite artists not making their greatest work in their 50s and 60s was not uh, because of their youth disappearing, but rather because of their ability to connect with the average person was disappearing because by the time they, you know, by the time Paul McCartney had hit 55, he had spent most of his life um, flying private, you know, and uh, don't get me wrong, like, I, I like Flaming Pie, but it's, you know, it's not the White Album. And I think that we're going to see more artists get better as they age because people aren't becoming so ubiquitously famous. Or, I don't know, I guess some people are. But, you know, you could argue that Tom Waits made his best work in his in his 40s and 50s, you know, and that's a person that he kind of flew a little bit farther from the sun than some of his contemporaries and was able to still stay in touch with the avant-garde and the sort of side of himself that made him interesting. Whereas some of the other people that, and again, not to disparage anyone, you know, cause you could, you could argue some, some late great works, you know, from some of our favorite artists. And there's definitely Dylan heads who, who insist that triplicate is better than blonde on blonde. 
I don't know how to do with this information, but you know, <laughs> I, 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 I find it interesting. Uh, and I, I think that maybe we will, maybe we will see it. Maybe that's an, an overly optimistic way to look at uh, musicians making less money. But I think that maybe that's what we're seeing is that we're, as we stay members of the middle class, we maybe we'll, we will become better writers because we'll remain connected to, to people and their, their, their truths. Another, another, not just rock and roll myth, but maybe all of art is the idea. And, and this is one that I think I believe in is the idea of hunger. And so much of what you describe as being hungry, like on this new record, after the frustration you had about putting a record out in the pandemic, the frustrations you had about your debut album, like each time a new album comes around, you are still hungry to prove yourself, to create something that you feel is authentic and powerful and true. What I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but no, to make something I, great. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't imagine not being incredibly hungry. I, I sometimes wonder, I feel like we get, sometimes people in the arts get really tired at a young age. And I, I don't come from a family of musicians. And like, you're supposed to work forever. You know, I like, I, I don't think there's, when I do hear people kind of getting going like, yeah, you know, I'm 37 now, like kind of tired of playing shows. I'm like, what do you mean, man? Like, we gotta go till we gotta go till we're like in, till they pull us from the stage because we're not making sense anymore, you know. Like this is a job; it's the greatest job in the world, but it's a job. We gotta work hard, you know. It's funny. I'm now in my fifties, and both of my kids are about to be out of the house. And my my wife will ask, "So, when do you think you will retire?" And I'm like, "To, <laughs> to do what? To like travel around and play guitar? That's what I do." <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, 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 no retirement plan. Uh, this is, I hope, I hope that maybe, maybe one day I'll emotionally retire and I'll just be like, maybe I will just be decide, like, I'm not going to stress about those things anymore, yeah. but that's, that's all I think I'll ever be able to offer myself. Like maybe someday in my early seventies, I'll have a little chat with myself and I'll go, if nobody shows up, we're not going to get mad anymore. We're just going <laughs> to, we're going to just going to be jolly, but that's all I think I'll ever offer myself. This is not exactly apropos of what you're saying, but you just reminded me of a, a quote, a bus driver we had had once just driven for a Willie Nelson tour. And he said that Willie got on the bus one night, and this is pretty recent, you know, and um, and Willie said, well, it happened. I finally outlived my pecker. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah, that's, that's I what that. I want. I want that. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's great. And I love also seeing our heroes get old, you know. I think yeah. that, you know, one, one, one time maybe that was thought to be, you know, I hope I get, you know, I hope I die before I get old. But I don't actually, I love, you know, I love the idea of that. But actually, no, I don't, I don't know. I want I want to see Dylan up there. I'm going to go see Dylan, you know. It's, it's, I think it's awesome. You know, I think it's awesome that Mick and Keith are still out there doing their thing and you know maybe maybe sometimes like if you watch you know if you watch it on on you know youtube or whatever it's, it it feels a little deflating but i don't know one time I was, I was at like a benefit show and they brought on the rolling stones and you know you're like oh my god this was with, when charlie was still there and and it you know you're like oh my god it's making keith could they, the idea that they could sit home and not do that that would be devastating that would be ridiculous like like they're still around, they're still here. They're they're kicking into jumping Jack Flash, and I don't care if it doesn't sound good. It's Mick, it's Keith, it's Charlie, it's Ronnie. Like 
Let's go, man. Like they're around. You get one life. They're still on the planet. I love this. All right. So if you wouldn't mind, please try and distill this wisdom that you've been sharing with us for an imagined 21 year old version of yourself today. Um, what advice might you give 21 year old Brian? Oh God. <laughs> I don't know if, you know, I wonder if he would even take my advice. Um, yeah. I, and I, not to get too nostalgic. Cause like I said, I, I turned 34 next week and I'm trying to remind myself, like, despite some of the feelings about, you know, um, you know, youth and stuff like that's, I'm, I'm a relatively young man and I, I don't want to get overly nostalgic too early because I'll, I'll burn out, you know, I still got a lot of road to go. Um, but I think that, um, uh, what would I tell 21 year old me? Um, it's not going to work out the way you thought it would. So you're going to have to reassess your values and it's going to be okay. You know, that's, I think that's the number one thing, right? Like it's going to be okay. It's going to be different than you thought it was going to be, but it's going to be okay. But you're going to have to make it okay. Um, I, I basically, my, my story is like, I, I spent the first two years that I lived in New York w kicking around thinking something would happen. Right. You know, like some sort of vintage idea of the music industry where Ahmet Erdogan walks in Rockwood Music Hall and goes, get me that guy, you know, that kind of thing. And I, nothing was happening. It was, it was bad. And I was going to flame out if I didn't do something. So I started booking myself on the road with these brutal tours, right, where I would just go to what I would call areas of lower music concentration and play anywhere. My only qualification for playing somewhere was that I needed to see that another act had played there and not been killed. Um, so I would like, I'd find like venues on Facebook. I'd find like some church that had a music thing and I'd just like look up the band that had played there. And if they were still active and I would book it. And, um, it was really weird. And, but slowly it got better and better and better. And I got up on my feet, but I never could have imagined that that was what, what it would be. I thought that I would move to New York and I would work my way into whatever idea of the music industry I had. So I guess if I told, was talking to 21 year old me, I would just tell him it's not, this idea is not going to shake out, but you will still be a musician. And uh, you'll even have some people that tattoo their, your lyrics on their arms. So it'll go. Okay. So that's good. I think that speaks to something that, that people don't talk about enough. The idea that expectations can be, I don't know if damaging is the right word, but problematic. Yeah, I don't think this this worked out at all, <laughs> but it, something better and and more gratifying happened. Because the other thing too, and I, I I'm sure you feel this way. If all your dreams had come true, knowing the practical version of yourself, I don't know if I would have survived it. No, I think I might have exploded. Yeah, in a terrible, terrible way. <laughs> I I put out my first album two years before you were born and I was what 17 and I remember meeting with A&R guys at that time and the music industry was all hair metal and 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 horror shows and yeah if I had been if I had had I don't know who at the time was having a hit maybe um Luca I don't know whatever the if I if I'd had one of those hits in the late 80s where I was like some kid it would have been a disaster 
Yeah, and they would have. You have great hair, so they would have. They would have pushed you that way. And then three years later, you would have been destroyed by your own the by the movement that you were a part of. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's it's hilarious to think that when I was when I was twenty two, I had that moment where somebody from Atlantic Records called. They'd gotten their hand on my first EP, which is was exactly my plan, right? Yeah. You know. Let's go. Like that's the thing. I, it was the classic call of the Are you sitting down? Right. That oh. was the first thing. I had put my friend as my agent on my website just to, he was just my friend, but he was like, just put my email just to, so they have someone to email. And he called me and he was like, are you sitting down? I just got a call from Atlantic Records. They're interested, but it was a, I don't want to name bands, but it was part of a, a genre of singer songwriter that was very popular and on its way out um, that I would associate with the mall. Um, and, uh, it was a guy who had signed one of those bands and was interested in signing me. And as all things go in the music industry, um, the conversation just sort of deteriorated. It went, you know, AWOL. Someone went on vacation and then, and was probably honestly just snooping around to see if I was already rich or already connected. Um, but at the time I took it as, you know, and it broke my heart when, when it sort of disappeared. Um, but I think about that all the time. My God, if I had been signed to Atlantic as sort of a post 2000s Aeropostal type singer songwriter, I would be dead in the water by now. You know, I would be absolutely, I don't know if I would be making records because, you know, they would have put me on a tour bus with, um, you know, some, some, some very sort of antiseptic act and I would have felt misunderstood and I don't do very well when I feel misunderstood. (laughs) And I think I would have just cracked, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Hard to say, you know, it'd be nice to have some money, but yeah, I don't know. And I think it would have also flamed out emotionally and mentally. I think I, I didn't realize how, 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 how kind of tough upstairs you need to be to, to handle all this. People are going to, you know, people are going to hurt your feelings. You need to be thin skinned and thick skinned at the same time. Well, that's true. It's funny. And then that comes back to that inner voice we talked about. You need to, you need to use it, but, not let it control you to the point where it ruins your life. Exactly. And I, I, I I don't think, I I think I was a very, you know, I was a very vulnerable kid and I, I, I don't think I would have responded very well to negative criticism. (laughs) Yeah. How's that going? Do you, do you, do you ever get it? (laughs) You know, I I get a lot better with it. I only let it get to me if I agree, you know, Got to hear that. Yeah. You know, I, I, generally speaking, I find it very funny because I also think that the times in my career where I had absolutely nothing going on, there were no negative comments. It's just your aunts and uncles going, great, great job, Brian. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so negative comment, negative comments and negative reviews are a rite of passage. They mean somebody thought you were worth uh, skewering. Tearing so, down. Yeah. Yeah. So if, you know, if, if, you know, if you're dealing with that, I think that you got to remember, like, this is a good kind of problem. People, people think you need a, people think you're too high and mighty and you need a takedown. That's, that's good. There have been points in my career where I'm sure people had negative thoughts where we're like, that guy couldn't, he can't take one more thing, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I try to remember that. I don't think I've ever had like a review that skewered me. I've had, you know, I've had some reviews that, that were positive in the wrong way. And I've certainly had some snarky reviewers try to, you know, slip a few in, 
but for the most part, it'll, you know, that type of stuff, um, it would only bother me if I agree with it. And then if I agree with it, you know, I think I've heard this bit about like taking a note, which is like, you get a note and it's like, I don't know if you, can you curse on this podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the note, when you, when you receive a note from somebody, your internal instinct is like, fuck you. And then it's fuck me. And then it's like, all right, what? And I think you have to cycle through all those emotions where you're like, how dare you say that to me? I'm the worst. All right. Let me see if I can make this useful. (laughs) Yeah. God, that's really well put. Lately I've had the idea of if someone, and this isn't just with regard to art and critics, but family and friends, if someone says something that I feel like they're wrong and they're being a jerk or a note, as you're saying, um, I'm trying to make myself say, what if they're right? What if they're right? And they are a lot of the time, it turns out. Exactly, yeah. Cause, because the worst thing that happens is it doesn't necessarily erase anything that you've been doing unless someone decides to give that note that just says that, that your entire being is useless or something. But generally speaking, you can work any note in if people say, oh, your lyrics are a little this way. You can just file that away and next time you're between two words in a song, you could pick the one that's less whatever that thing might be, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's hard to remember, but we're just, we're just trying to get better with each album, you know? And of course there's no, there's no way to not be offended. Right. Cause you're, 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 when, when people are saying they don't like your work, they're sort of saying they don't like you, you know, this is, it's, you know, it's me up there. It's, it's that's my personality. That's who I am. That's my, and you do feel very naked. So sometimes your natural instinct can be to defend because you just feel like you're standing on stage naked and someone's like, I don't like your legs. And you're like, ah, leave me alone. <laughs> you know, but yeah, you have to sort of take them back to the lab and decide. And so, of course, sometimes you get a note and you're like, no. Nah. Sometimes I, I get negative feedback and I'm like, that's the kind of negative feedback I want, you know. Um, like I, I, got, I, rem- I got a note recently uh, somebody just like a funny little YouTube note or something like that, that somebody was like, sounds like he's doing a Julian Casablanca's impression. Now I was like, I thought, I thought that was funny because I was like, you know what? I'd love to sound like Julian Casablanca's and I don't think I do. Uh, and so I'm going to take that as a compliment, you know, nice. uh, because nobody's ever compared me to Julian Casablanca's before. And I'm a big strokes fan, but I've, I've never really been able to integrate that into my music at all. Uh, and I was trying to on this record just a little bit. So I was like, that negative feedback is actually a compliment because that's what I was kind of trying to, I was kind of trying to do a little Julian Casablanca's impression on that too. Nice. <laughs> and I'm glad it got across, you know? Oh man, this is great. I feel like there's so much really useful, really actionable, definitely thoughtful stuff in here. And um, I think people are going to love hearing this and I really appreciate it. And I'm, so proud of you for this new record, and I'm excited to see what Fantasticat does next. And thank you so much for joining me, Brian. Oh, thank you so much, Rhett. And if I could just pay you one compliment before we end here. You know, you've always been super, super nice to all of us, um, all the young songwriters who came up uh, after you and, and you know, uh, you know, and that you had an influence on you. I think the first time I opened for you, I told you I had your first record and I was uh, 
and you know, I was like kind of, you know, nervous around you and you, you were really, really nice to me. And you did it. I remember you dedicated, uh, we've been doing this longer than you've been alive to me, which was true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I, I think that, you know, and we all have said it to one another, like you've just been so much kinder than I would say a lot of your contemporaries are. And it's hard to come by. It's a very caustic industry. And I, I felt like you've, even when we've just chatted, you've always just said we, you know, when talking about musicians and it's not common, you know, for people, you know, to, to treat younger artists as equals. And I really appreciate that. Oh man, that's very sweet. Thank you for saying that. I'm going to tell my kids later that you said that. <laughs> They'll have to be nice to me. <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh man, you rock. Well, I hope our paths cross soon. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Rhett. Appreciate you having me. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Osiris. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast.